I don't think people realize that the you know S&P 500, for instance, is down 99% versus Bitcoin in the last 10 years. I think it's more likely that Bitcoin can trade up to 500,000 or more likely that happens or even, a, you know, maybe a million, I don't know, in 10 years or something. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by 10T Holdings, Mr. Dan Tapiero. Dan, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Yeah. Happy to be here. I, we made you work for it with the technical stuff in the beginning, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to make this interview work. I think that was more my fault than yours. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think there's enough blame to go around there. Um, but let, let's just get into it here. Uh, Dan, I, I want to talk about this uh, successful fundraise that you just did, but I actually want to start with your picture of the macro. I was kind of telling you before we hopped on here, I've been doing this exercise recently of going back and listening to what people were saying in March and April of 2020. And there were all these predictions of the world is ending, yada, yada. But you came out and said, hey, look at this M2 number. This is crazy bullish. And you got there way before everyone else did. So talk to us a little mm. bit about what's kind of your macro framework for looking at the world. Has it changed since then? Have you updated it slightly? How are you just kind of looking at markets in general? Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, there were, cert- uh, there were a few data points in March and April that were so off the charts. I mean, you know, 10 standard deviations from what was normal. I'm talking about in the economic data. Um, You know, at one point, I think uh, every restaurant in New York had closed, uh, you know, I mean, 100% shut down. There was no one using uh, the subway at all. Uh, Activity, you know, basically ground to a halt, of course, not just in New York. And, You know, I'd never seen extreme ratings like that. And, you know, it was really driven by what I call a non-economic exogenous event. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, COVID. So basically, the Fed was created to lean against uh, non-economic exogenous events. I mean, not only, but that was that's certainly one of their the important things that they do. And so to me, you know, it was very it was very clear. Um, you know, they weren't going to let the system uh, implode. It wasn't an economic thing. It was like a, an act of uh, nature or, you know, a calamitous uh, uh, type event that, you know, in a way, of course, we knew w- would be temporary. I don't think anyone thought that we were going to be in lockdown 100% for the rest of our lives. So, you know, the way the Fed responded and the Treasury and the handouts, I mean, I've never seen. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't receive any, but there were certainly people who I knew who didn't need any handouts, who were done. taking handouts. And certainly the whole thing through J.P. Morgan and the banks, the way it was coordinated, uh, it was hundreds of millions, billions, I'm sorry, billions of dollars that went to um, people supposedly need. Some obviously were, but others were not. So I never seen such a massive liquidity giveaway in such a short period of time. And then what happened was all that showed up uh, in the data um, in the M1, M2, and you had a spike like we've never seen. I mean, even beyond uh, what happened in World War II, you just didn't, you know, you've never seen the central bank balance sheets globally expand to that degree. Um, So, you know, I, I didn't think it was that difficult in a way to say, well, the markets just collapsed in a very short period of time stocks it's down you know 15 percent on the month or whatever it was i just didn't sense that you know the this was an obvious uh one to respond to it wasn't like the authorities had to divine the tea leaves have debates it wasn't nuanced you know it was straightforward hit the system with everything we got to keep things running at a minimum yeah right so, I mean, I've never seen such a ground, uh, uh, a, a ground to a halt of the economy anywhere, anytime, even in the worst economic meltdowns in the emerging markets, nothing ever shuts down like this. So, you know, after the collapse in the price, it just, you know, it seemed pretty clear to me, you know, if I were in a, a central bank governor, if I were in treasury, this is really the only thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so, look, uh, and look, I've had just like, you know, many portfolio managers uh, who've been successful. You know, I've had experience buying into collapses and buying weakness. And, 
um, you have to feel comfortable wading in and being comfortable with that level of uncertainty. Um, so I, 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 I like sort of being more of a lone voice. I think if everyone was calling for uh, a big stock rally, I would have been maybe a little more nervous about it. Mm. Um, and that goes the same for Bitcoin. I mean, that was the low for Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, you know, all risk assets. Yeah. And so I think that's continued. I wouldn't say my framework has changed. I think it's just that, you know, there's so much gross debt outstanding now. I don't see how the authorities can raise interest rates to any, you know, large degree. Uh, the paying off the interest on that debt burden globally would be just too much. And what we have now are negative interest rates uh, in real terms and in, you know, many cases, actual negative rates. And so as long as that uh, continues, I, you know, I think it's a very positive backdrop for assets, uh, you know, for the digital asset ecosystem, for Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, you know, people in the traditional world don't realize that, you know, even on a stable coin, you can earn five, six, seven, eight percent, um, you know, earning zero or negative uh, and in real terms, losing purchasing power uh, with your with your deposits, uh, you know, at a, at a regular bank just doesn't really make sense. So um, I think something I think it's all still the same framework. It's just. I don't think we're going to get a 100% rally like we did from the March low. Uh, Ethereum, I think, is up over 20 times. I, I don't see that happening in the next year. Um, but, and I think some consolidation would be healthy for the markets. So I think central bank liquidity is still going to be there. Rates going to still stay here broadly for a while. Yeah. You know, Dan, one thing I'd be curious to get your perspective on is... There are kind of two groups of folks that I talk to. Like if you consume a lot of uh, financial media, right, um, you you could very easily get the idea that kind of the sky is falling with all this debt, right? Like I, I, I consume a lot of podcasts and I listen to what people are saying and there's this narrative out there which is, you know, there's no way we're ever going to be able to pay off this amount of debt. We're headed towards some sort of violent restructuring and yada, yada. And I will say – I. Some of the folks that I talk to that actually run money, manage money, folks such as yourself, some of these other portfolio managers that I don't want to necessarily name now, but they kind of have a different viewpoint, which is like, look, uh, yeah, we are headed towards some sort of restructuring, but there's growth in the digital assets ecosystem. A lot of this debt is going to be somehow restructured or kind of written off or inflated away, et cetera. It's going to be painful, but it's not going to be the end of the world. Like when you kind of look out over the course of the next, um, you know, let's say 12 months to maybe three years or something like that. Do you see some really kind of painful transition? Do you think it's going to be smoother uh, maybe than folks are predicting right now? Like, what do you just kind of think of the next uh, couple of years in general? Well, you know, look, I think the transition uh, has been happening since 08. Um, you know, it's been a very slow, uh, you know, a very slow, I, I would call slow grind, a slow um, reduction in people's purchasing power. And what do I mean by that? Um, look, and this is a strange way to think about it, but I don't think people realize that the, you know, S&P 500, for instance, is down 99% versus Bitcoin in the last 10 years. And so, you know, Bitcoin, you know, the bonds are down 99% against Bitcoin. And so... <clears throat> For the last 10 years, we've had negative real interest rates of about, let's say, 1% to 2%. So if your money has been sitting in a bank, you've actually lost 20% roughly over that time period on a real basis, um, you know, and probably more on a purchasing power basis. So there has been this, um, it's like that Reinhardt Rogoff piece, you know, <clears throat> there has been a slow sort of debasement uh, of the currency and it's really of all fiat and it's of, of all things that can be produced in infinite quantity like fiat versus things that cannot be produced in infinite quantity like Bitcoin, you know, to some degree, Ethereum uh, mm -hmm. as well. But, um, you know, I think that's what happens is that there, <clears throat> we end up getting what I call sort of this massive generational wealth transfer as the 
baby boomers and older people stay stuck in their 60-40 allocation in the traditional world, where all the people sort of under 35, basically, they all own uh, cryptocurrency and, you know, digital assets uh, before owning even a stock. Mm -hmm. And so you're having value accrue um, to that younger group and um, the wealth is slowly being debased um, in the legacy system versus this new system. So I think it's going to be sort of painless in a way. It's sort of like when you get a shot and you don't like realize uh, it's not painful. Right. But then all of a sudden, you know, two years later, you're dead. <laughs> and I, I, I think it's not that so much you're dead. It's just that your wealth is getting slowly eroded. Yeah. Um, if you're staying in that, you know, traditional world and you have no allocation to the, to the uh, digital asset ecosystem. I, I tell you, I don't think it even takes, a, it doesn't even take a, a large exposure to the new world to have a dramatic impact on, your, on the allocation of a traditional portfolio. Yeah. So uh, it's a weird way to think about it um, because I don't see a cataclysmic ending. I mean, I remember there was a book in the late 80s called The Day of Reckoning, I think it was called, and it was about how the Reagan spending on military was going to, uh, and the increase in debt was going to lead to a collapse. I mean, that was in the late 80s. I read that book in college or some part of it. And, you know, look, I'll say one other thing. The dollar has been very stable against other fiat currencies. Okay. The dollar, again, is down 99% against Bitcoin in the last 10 years. But it's been very stable. So I don't think that we have to worry about, let's say, collapse um, with the dollar at this level against other fiat currencies. If you were to see a 20% drop in the dollar against the euro in like a month, I would start to worry that there was some sort of funding crisis. But I don't see that, you know, and I do see the potential, though, you know, for a slow, long dollar bear market. Um, you know, sort of like 02 to 08, the dollar went from, you know, 80 on the euro to 160. I could see the euro uh, going up, you know, 20, 30, 40 percent in the next few years um, against the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to happen, though, and it's not a really strongly held view. Um, but that also tells me that Bitcoin has a very long way to go because part of the reason that one would be long Bitcoin would be as a hedge against a outright dollar devaluation against other fiat. And that devaluation hasn't even started yet. So it's still, we got plenty of room to go on this, uh, on the Bitcoin and, and the DAE. Totally. Yeah. Um, I got, uh, and you know, just that idea that you were reading this paper in 1980. And uh, so if you read this book, we might have even late talked 80s, about late, late 80s. 80s. Okay. So if you, different. if you listen to this, if you read this book, you know, Market Wizards, have you heard of that book? Of uh, course. So yeah, course. yeah, if you go read that, that book was written in 1989, right? Uh, if for those in the audience unfamiliar, it's interviews with some very famous traders like Paul Tudor Jones is featured there, Bruce Kovner, guys of that ilk. And I mean, if you literally, I actually took a photo when I was reading it, because I was like, you could you could take the exact same stuff those guys were saying in the late 80s, transpose it to today, and just the numbers would be bigger, and that's the only difference. You know, they were saying deficits of like, you know, 50 billion or something like that were gonna bankrupt. So it just goes to show, uh, it was instructive for me. Yeah, um, yeah but Mike, I think what the, the truth of the matter is, is that yes, the US has, you know, um, has the ability to continue this um, you know, I, I, you know, this dollar debt nexus until it doesn't. And I, 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 right. but I, I frankly think that, you know, the U S is still the most sort of most important, powerful nation out there. And we're doing lots of good things, but you know, there, there are a lot of things from a policy perspective, smart things that we could be doing that we're not doing. You know, and at some point, I guess the chickens come home to roost, that they say, Um, you know, but I just, it doesn't feel like we're anywhere there. And um, I think it's more likely that Bitcoin can trade up to 500,000 or 
more likely that happens or even, a, you know, maybe a million, I don't know, in 10 years or something, yeah, then the U.S. is going to default on its debt. That's just not, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I want to yeah. ask you one more question before we get into kind of digital asset ecosystem and then start to talk about 10T a little. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I know you've got this business in gold. I've heard you be an advocate for gold um, in the past. Uh, you know, I will say we, so we do a weekly roundup on this show, um, actually, uh, Mark Yusko is our, our new co-host. Um, I, I know you know. He's great. He's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we did this chart uh, the other week, which is basically gold has an inverse correlation with real rates, and it tends to to track, right? The more uh, real rates go down, the more gold goes up. There's recently been a bit of a break in that pattern, right, where you have real rates going increasingly negative, but gold isn't responding uh, in a positive direction. What are your kind of thoughts overall on, on gold as a protector? Are you surprised by it not going up? Do you see, do, is Bitcoin kind of eating some of the market share of gold in the store of value category? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I mean, maybe a little bit, but, you know, I always say this about gold and I've been investing and trading in it for over 20 years. Gold never does what you want it to do when you want it to do it. <laughs> and it's just, that's the way it is. It'll goes sideways for a year when it should have rallied and then all of a sudden you know you take a week uh, vacation you come back and it's up two hundred dollars um so it kind of moves you know when it feels like it I, look it's been consolidating against that august high from last year uh yeah it should have rallied but i still think we're going up to make new highs in the next six to twelve months and you know gold is a great hedge within the legacy system within the traditional world if you're sitting in a 60 40 portfolio you have 40 percent in bonds um, those bonds aren't going to work as a hedge for your equities if we have a slowdown uh kind of like it feels like right now um you know or even a more severe slowdown there's just there's nowhere to go they're yielding one percent or whatever it is that not going to really go below zero and i think gold can become an institutional hedge on the asset side because you will see the Fed and the Treasury again if things wobble and the unemployment rate goes up at some point. We're talking like in the next two, three, four years. I think gold can still act as a hedge in that world. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, and I don't, I don't think that trend has even really started. I mean, institutions generally do not own any gold. Yeah. People don't realize this. They just that they don't. And I don't think we've had a switch in mentality towards people saying, you know, these bonds aren't really a good risk reward. Uh, you know, I'm getting uh, devalued in a sense, the real rate being minus. I'm losing purchasing power owning these bonds. Maybe I'll own more equity or more assets and then have some gold as a hedge against that. And that's sort of been my recommendation and how um, I've been positioned for um, this endowment where I sit on the investment committee, um, you know, for this endowment, it's a more traditional um, allocation. And um, I think that's, you know, that's worked really well. So, um, you know, that being said, also Bitcoin is still and the DA is still very small. You're looking at a trillion dollar market cap. You know, it's gone from zero to a trillion over 12 years. I mean, that's not a big deal. Um, even if it were to go to five to 10 trillion, look, total value of all assets out there is like $500 trillion and 200 trillion of that, okay, is sitting in cash to cash plus duration. So you got $200 trillion sitting in fixed income instruments, cash to fixed income, you know, cash plus duration, yielding nothing with very little price appreciation potential. Um, I think gold and Bitcoin can can win from that. Also, look, Bitcoin is a lot more and Ethereum and the whole world. It's just a lot bigger than just a hedge for your assets. Right. So completely. I yeah, I, I don't think gold is going away ever. I mean, it's got the 5000 years of history, the greatest probably network effect of any asset ever. I mean, if you go to any country in the world, no matter where you are, I mean, people know air, they know food, they know the sun, you know, they know gold, right? I mean, That's gold good. represents value to human beings, just like the sun is light, right? 
yeah or you know or food is sustenance so that's not changing <laughs> you know overnight that's you know. very well said um i, I want to uh, return to your point actually which you said like bitcoin and ethereum it's a lot bigger than just a hedge right and i feel like um some folks in uh you know kind of the traditional finance community got a hold they they finally got this narrative of like okay bitcoin equals digital gold um I've heard you say that one of the reasons that still makes you feel bullish on at least Bitcoin, but the whole DAE ecosystem, as you call it, uh, is because some of it, it still doesn't feel like they fully grasped it. And one of the, the things I've, I've heard you say, and Raul Paul says this over at Real Vision, is that the worlds of crypto and macro are coming together and aligning. And eventually they feel like two separate conversations right now, but in the future, they're going to merge and become one. Can you like break that concept down for us? Why are these two worlds colliding? How do you see those two worlds coming together? You know, look, I think it's the DAE, again, digital asset ecosystem in this world, um, you know, which is really just the idea that all things of value will eventually be put on a blockchain and will sit somewhere in this digital asset ecosystem. And, you know, whether it's all, I mean, all on Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, I, I tend to think that you know each of these different blockchains will have their use cases. Um, you know, Bitcoin being sort of the sterling collateral, the you know AAA collateral for the system, and Ethereum having all sorts of other functionality. Um, and you know, I don't want to get into some of the other ones um, because we're talking about macro, and those are the only two right now that I would that I would call you know have network effect to the degree that they really are macro variables, right? And I think what Raul is saying, look, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, um, you know, macro was really about making judgments and investments on interest rates and currencies, uh, and also bets on emerging markets, new markets. And I think all he's saying is like the big structural macro change in the world is the growth of this DAE. You know, there's no more money to make in bonds or currencies. Um, you know, there's very little alpha in that hedge fund business. Um, again, I, look, I've always said this. The top 1% of guys will always make money as investors. You know, um, you, know you look at the, the, the big funds, the most successful guys, you know, the tiger managements out there. They're always going to figure out a way to win, right? Because they're on the cutting edge. Uh, they do a huge amount of work um, and, you know, they're great investors. But, you know, the bottom 90 percent, it's just it's like drawing blood from a stone in that business. And, um, you know, part of the reason that I left that business and stopped uh, in 2012 and just retired from money management because, you know, the anomalies that existed and the structural change that we saw, for instance, in the early 90s, you know, post the ERM crisis, post the Asian crisis, you know, post the NASDAQ 2000 bubble, a lot of the policy measures that were put into place to influence activity, you know, were macro measures. And so we're now at a point, but those were in theory free markets. I don't think the traditional markets are free markets anymore. Um, you know, that's the problem is that, you uh, you know, there's no real alpha in divining the macro tea leaves. And I think what he's saying, and I think this is right, is that the opportunity to um, make alpha in this space, whether it's in borrowing and lending or, you know, somewhere in the DeFi ecosystem or in trading derivatives. I mean, there are anomalies uh, in the yield curves of some of these um Currencies, I think, look, even today, how early are we? For me, in my mind, it's like 1979, 1980 in the treasury bond option world. So if you think about that, um, you know, you have today 90% of total world Bitcoin and Ethereum option trading, 90% on Deribit, right? There's one company that does 90% of the world's volume in options. And one day you're going to see many options players. You're going to see options on all of these cryptocurrencies. You're going to see yield curve trading and arbitrage and, um, you know, the, the, the movement into staking as a service is, is another area. You know, um, 
the the growth just this year of the metaverse opportunities in the metaverse i mean it's just there's a whole world growing up here um where if you focus as a fund manager there are tons of opportunities yeah um again that's not that's not our focus at 10t but raul when he talks about the macro world will merge there's a tremendous skill set that people have developed in the traditional investment world that can be applied to what's growing up in the DAE. Yeah. And people are just slow. I mean, Goldman Sachs should have 100 people sitting in their prop group or whatever. I don't even know if they have prop group anymore. I, you know, I, I don't follow any of the things that are going on at the investment banks, but you know, they, you know, they should have hundreds of people arbing opportunities, providing liquidity. Um, as I said, this is an early stage, mar like an early stage market, and you have exponential rates of growth happening. You know, cryptocurrency volume is up 500% from last year. I mean, 500%. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. It's just mind boggling. So, so let me ask you something, because one thing that I've observed listening to macro guys such as yourself is you guys are really good at frameworks for things. You're very good at uh, like analyzing data, not getting super in the weeds, putting a framework around it, and generally getting things directionally right more than you get them wrong. One of the toughest things for me about crypto in general um, is, is the exponentiality of it and just straight up the rate of growth. And I think people really get in a lot, of, like I get in a lot of trouble with anchoring bias, right? Because, you know, oftentimes you'll look at something and be like, hey, I remember when this Solana was $2 and now it's 180 and it might still be a buy uh, and you need to reframe yourself. So like, what are some of the skill sets that you kind of uh, took over? Like, how do you kind of adjust uh, frameworks to kind of incorporate this insane exponential rate of growth that you're well, kind of seeing in digital assets? Look, these markets are just like any other markets. Um, you know, there, there are markets in the traditional world over the last 30 years that have had bubbles that have then collapsed 85, 90% and then rallied again years later. The most important thing in approaching this sector is holding period. And, um, you know, if you have a short-term view uh, and you're trading short-term <laughs> and you're good at it, well, that's wonderful. But 99% of the people um, you know, I, I think it, it, you know, will you know, do themselves a service by having a long-term view, by not trading it, by not looking at minutia, um, by saying, you know, as I say, even in my Twitter uh, description, I, you know, I'm a hodler, Bitcoin and gold hodler. I think the way to extract wealth, alpha money out of this space is a long-term holding period. You buy it. You hold it for five years, you hold it for 10 years, um, whatever your holding period is. But if you get too in the weeds and start trying to understand every little squiggle, um, I really think that the likelihood is, is at some point you will lose money or get shaken out of your position. Um, and so I approach everything from that perspective. Um, you know, Solana could be a buy here. I couldn't buy it after, you know, that kind of exponential rally. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't, but that's not to say that it's not a buy. Um, the way that I, and maybe this is a good segue into 10T, because the way that I handle uh, that kind of decision uh, is really not to make it. And what do I mean by that is that, you know, I launched this fund 10T, and, you know, we had some news stories recently out about us because we closed the fund and raised quite a lot of money. And my idea was, you know, relatively simple in a way, at least from my perspective, which is that I want to build a basket of 10 to 15 businesses that are growing up with the growth of the digital asset ecosystem. And I want to bet on those companies and the CEOs and leadership teams of those companies to leverage general growth in the space. So some of the companies that we own are indeed leveraged to the growth of Solana, right? Because they offer it on their platform. Solana, you know, um, goes up in value. They make more money, right? So I'm making a, a, what I think is an easier bet that does not have the same kind of volatility, 
right? When you own a business that, you know, that you think is going to be successful, that has a five-year plan, that has visionary leaders, they're going to grow. And, you know, Bitcoin dropped 50% this year and the value of the businesses we own I, didn't budge. Um, and in fact, that should kept going up because remember, you know, these guys are continuing to grow. They're adding business lines. Um, you know, they're moving into new areas. And so you can have growth in a business in the space, even as, you know, Bitcoin uh, consolidates. Like, so, so in my view, we've been 40, 30, 40, 50, 40, 50,000 on Bitcoin is all the same price to me. Like, I don't even, that doesn't matter because that's a very healthy price, for instance, for Bitcoin miners. Bitcoin miners are making a huge amount of money with Bitcoin at that price. Um, platforms like Kraken, for instance, uh, which we own, are, are making, you know, are having a record setting year. They're making huge amounts of money with the cryptocurrencies generally um, at this place. But they, they've also added, you know, DeFi uh, tokens. They've added, um, you know, uh, uh, staking. Uh, I mean, so I want to bet that the, the leaders of the firms we're investing in are going to be better than me at figuring out those next opportunities, right? And maybe some of them even, you know, put some of the, the, uh, some of the cryptocurrencies on their, on their balance sheet, right? I mean, you know, you saw Coinbase, uh, you know, added a chunk of Bitcoin. Um, you know, that's another way that you can be long, um, you know, with, without sort of being long with all the volatility. And these are private businesses, all of them. They're all mid to late stage. We invested in 11 companies. Nine of them have a valuation over a billion dollars. These are not sort of fly by night like crypto biz. Um, I really, you know, this is not three, four, five years ago. Um, this is a very robust sector. Uh, I think growth equity guys have been slow to focus on it. I mean, you know, we hear about the Tigers and the Kotus coming in and making investments. But, you know, as far as I know, we're the only fund that is exclusively and only focused on mid to late stage DAE businesses. And, you know, I think that eventually we'll have more company, but a lot of the growth equity guys, they're not that comfortable with crypto or macro or currencies. And this is still not, you know, still not their thing. I think that's going to change. Yeah. So um, the way that I would play, as you say, <laughs> you know, how do you play the exponentiality of growth in the space is through this. It's almost like an index I've created in a way, this basket of um, sort of more what I would call blue chip type businesses in the space. I think in the next five to 10 years, we really have the potential to go up five or 10x, let's say, on these businesses. Um, I know that's not, uh, you know, from two to 180 on Solana, and I'll let the venture capitalists make all that money and some of the crypto hedge funds, you know, they deserve that if they've gotten it right, God bless them. Um, but for the investor base, my investor base, which are almost all guys from the traditional world, they're not comfortable uh, owning some of these, um, you know, cryptos and, you know, pro early stage protocols. They're just not comfortable with the risk and they don't have the expertise to make the judgments. And some of them actually are not allowed to own cryptocurrency, but they can own the equity of private businesses. Right. And so, you know, I think we've tapped into a whole new universe of investor and brought in a, a huge chunk of money into the space. And I'm basically saying, okay, I believe in the leadership teams here, in the business plans of these companies. Um, and, you know, hopefully as the DAE grows, I've chosen the right guys to grow with it. I actually love uh, 10T as a fund and where you guys fit into the ecosystem. And for viewers who might not be aware, uh, Block, we did we did some reporting on this, and maybe we can drop the link in the show notes here. But uh, Dan raised uh, 750 million uh, for this fund. So Dan, I'm pretty sure that makes you one of the largest asset managers in this space. Um, and I agree. I think you're doing something totally unique because you know, for me, if you look at the the development of the different types of fund managers in this space. 
uh, you know, venture was kind of the one that got there first. And that makes sense for a bunch of different reasons. One, they're early stage, right? So a lot of, and uh, a lot of them are good at kind of figuring out tech trends beforehand, but also for a long time. And I would say still, um, it was a wrapper that, uh, allocators were comfortable getting exposure to the space, right? They're like, I can't get over, over owning this stuff myself. I get the venture uh, wrapper. I get the return profile. Okay, this just like makes sense for me. And by the way, you know, we're always like, oh, these older guys, they can't wrap their head around it. it took me years to wrap my head around it. Years. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I know. It's a weird thing. Let's just call it what it is. It's a weird thing. It's a paradigm shift. It takes a long time. It takes to a get... lot of work too. It does. Right? It does. Yeah. You got to get conviction in it. Um, but you know what? Some of the, you know, some of these older guys, they're, you know, they're smart. They're successful money managers and they know something is going on here. They see that it was zero 10 years ago and now it's a three trillion uh, ecosystem. I, I, the value of Bitcoin, the value of Ethereum, the value of all the cryptocurrencies and the value of the equity in the space are measures around three trillion. Uh-huh. And, you know, it, it's here. It's not going away. Yes, it's hugely volatile. Um, that's the way early stage markets are. Um, but I'll tell you one thing, things are, and this goes to your exponential comment, things are growing even faster than I had anticipated. I mean, the name of this fund is 10T. That stands for 10 trillion. I didn't know that, that until is, I listened to Pomp's interview with you. And that's right, so cool. Right. And so <laughs> I know, and that name came from the idea that in the end of 19, the, the whole ecosystem, as I described, it was $300 billion. And I thought, okay. This 300 billion can turn to 10 trillion. So the idea was 10T in 10 years, right? 10 year life on a private equity fund. And so, but what's happened is in two years, we're 3T. So I I thought 300 billion to 10 trillion, which is a 30X, okay, was already a pretty bold statement. And I've been proven wrong. I mean, we're 3T now, we only have 3X left and I've got eight years left to do that. So do I think we're going to hit 10T in 10 years? 100% I do. I really think that. So, yeah. and that's blown, that's sort of blown me away and the team away. And I think that's why I was in a rush in a way to put the money to work. But look, we didn't reach for any investments. I didn't pay more than 10 times revenue on any of the investments that we made. Um, I passed on investments in the space that were 20, 30 times revenue. Those are great companies still, but I wasn't willing to pay that type of valuation. You know, we also try to invest in companies between $500 million of market value and let's say, you know, 2 billion, uh, just because we wanna make a five to 10 X return over the next five to eight years. Um, when you invest in something that's 20, 30 billion, it's just harder to make those big returns. I mean, right. I'm not saying that some of those businesses won't do it, it's just, it's harder. And, you know, the universe is so big. And I mentioned this before too. Uh, I looked at the teaser that we did for the fund in September of 20. So just a year ago. And there were only 20 businesses that had a market value of over a billion dollars. 20. Okay. And today there are 70. So one year later, right? And that doesn't even you know, speak to the number of businesses over 500 million, over 100. It's a very robust uh, ecosystem today. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, 
and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. Howdy, everyone. If you're a long-term investor in Ethereum, then listen up because I am talking directly to you here. If you've been listening to the show for the last two months, then you know that I am a big, big fan of ETH and the entire world of DeFi that's being built on top of it. It's honestly just super, super interesting, but it's also probably the single greatest wealth creation opportunity that I am ever going to see in my entire life. And the best thing about ETH is that you can hold it, but with this new upgrade to 2.0, you can also stake it and earn yield that way. The only problem is under the current set of rules, unless you have 32 ETH or at today's price is almost $100,000, then you can't stake it. Until now. Our good friends over at Matrix Sport just unrolled a solution which allows investors with as few as 5 ETH to start staking today. At the time of this recording, you can earn up to 9% APY, although that's going to vary based on the protocol. So stop what you're doing. Stop listening to me. Go click the link at the bottom of this episode. If it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, click that link, go over to the website and tell them that I sent you. All right, give me a little credit, but definitely go click the link. Start learning about how you can stake your ETH and earn yield or other yield generation opportunities. If you look at kind of like the, uh, okay, so Apple's maybe a great example of this, right? $2 trillion company, $2.2 trillion company, whatever. You know, it took them, I think they IPO'd in 1980. So, you know, it took them something like, uh, whatever, 39 years to get their first trillion and then only two years to double that. And I wonder if you see a similar dynamic um, with some of these companies in crypto, right? You probably had, look, I mean, Kraken might be a great example, right? They've been around since 20, what, 14, 2015? Before, um, before. And so it's been kind of a slow and steady grind. I have no inside information here. I don't know anything at all, but I would guess their equity value has at least doubled or tripled in the last uh, 12 months, if not. No, more. it's done a lot more than that. Right. Yeah. Um, I bought it. I mean, look, I, I, you know, sometimes you really do get lucky. I mean, we, we bought it in January and we think the value is up four to five X from January. Oh my God. And, and we took a very large position. I mean, I have to say it's, you know, it, it, as I said, it really surprised me. Um, but early stage markets look this way. If you go back and look at the, you know, uh, mortgage backed security market in 1982, if it even existed, it's the same thing. You have astronomical rates of growth in the first 10 years of a market. I mean, think about, you know, you read that Liars Poker and Lou Ranieri and the development of the mortgage-backed market. Back then in the early mid-80s, that was like rocket science. I mean, you had MIT guys coming out of school, going to work at Solomon Brothers, structuring different, like, you know, uh, packaging these mortgages. Then you had the CMO business, you know, which was even a further sort of chopping up of those bonds. At the time, that was super-duper cutting edge. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, my guess is, is that most of the older community, the 50, 60 year old plus guys back in the you know, mid 80s, they didn't understand anything about you know, PSA speeds and all this other stuff. I still don't understand that today. So uh, never traded mortgage bonds, but I, I, I will say um, it's this kind of complexity, uh, which is, you know, I, I think it is a huge barrier to entry um, for people. And, you know, in my view, I mean, that's what really the opportunity is you do, as I've said before, you know, I did like six months of 10 hours a day. And that was after really having been introduced to this world in 2014, through my gold business, mm. um, you know, which is, I've mentioned before, uh, integrated with a firm called BitReserve, And we were the first place you could buy and sell physical gold to buy and sell Bitcoin and Ripple. And so, but the market value of the ecosystem back then was only $10 billion. And so I thought, you know, 10 billion market cap is irrelevant, you know, in 2013, 14, you know, that's too small. And I'm a macro guy. I trade these big liquid things. Um, but anyway, thank goodness. I, you know, it's uh, I always tell my analysts, it's never too late to do the right thing. Um, maybe that answers your Solana question. I don't know, but, uh, you know, focusing on this in, um, mid 19, actually really starting in 18, 19 after the, you know, the, the collapse of that peak in 17 bubble, uh, it was a great time. And, um, you know, I still think it's, it's still early. You know, I, th I think that 
we were always going to have a break at a trillion dollar market value for Bitcoin, which is 50,000. Uh, and we were going to consolidate. That was always been my view. But I think we've got, you know, in the next two, three, four years in that period, we'll, I think, head up to around, you know, 300,000. And then I, that's like around 5 trillion market value. And then I think we'll, we'll pause again. I mean, it's and you could pause for a year or two. You know, I, I don't know. Um, and I, I use the Bitcoin price really as a proxy for the entire space. You know, it may be, you know, maybe Ethereum outperforms. I have no idea. You know, who knows what new, you know, things might happen in the next two, three, four years. But that's sort of the advantage of 10T in a way, because I don't need to make a bet on any one specific thing. I am getting almost a, with this portfolio we've built a free option on all the things yep. that are going to develop in the DAE that have not yet developed. And that's, you know, that's that's what I want as a as a long term macro investor. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to keep up with the pace of change. Yeah. You know, there's just no way. Right. Dan, I've, I've got two questions for you uh, based on what you just said, actually. So number one, uh, that exact sentiment that you just expressed, which you see kind of Bitcoin as sort of a, a proxy for, for the entire space. Um, I think for a long time that was true, but I'm actually starting to change my mind about that personally. Like if you look at crypto cycles, those tend to be anchored around kind of uh, Bitcoin's four year happening cycle. I think for a very long time, index products were kind of pointless in the space because it all just tracked the price of Bitcoin. So why not just buy Bitcoin instead of an index? I think now for the first time, only in this last two years, this last cycle, you have distinct sectors which are operating um, and I think it's looking like an increasingly diverse ecosystem. So like DeFi and uh, these kind of platforms like Uniswap, uh, you know, decentralized exchanges, borrow lend protocols like Aave, you know, I, I get from a psychological perspective why they still track Bitcoin. But over time, it makes sense to me that they should diverge meaningfully, right? Like NFTs, it's probably a little uh, frothy right now, but ultimately I see a huge amount of value uh, behind that. And I think eventually they'll be their own thing. I mean, this is this reminds me almost of like a macro kind of framework. Do you do you track these different sectors? Do you see them breaking from Bitcoin? Do you see them sticking together in like one kind of asset class, or do you like what's your kind of framework for, for looking at that? The whole yeah, I mean that's right. I mean even uh, I think Paul Tudor Jones did a interview maybe six nine months ago. I can't remember where he said you know Bitcoin is like the gold, but then Ethereum is like. Uh, copper and you know polka dot is like aluminum and you know you have different base metals that trade sometimes on spread to copper you know sometimes there's a ratio you know they have their own stories i guess that's you know i guess that'll happen um you know again i i i i'm not really comfortable making that bet because i just don't know Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look at the list of companies I own and I think whatever happens in this space, I'm going to be there. Um, but look, you know, my friend Hunter at uh, Bitwise, he's yep. got a nice little crypto index that he's put together um, that people out there can buy. Um, you know, that's a little more diversification if they want it. But look, I also think that without Bitcoin, there is no... DAE, there is none, none of this without Bitcoin, right? You know, the Satoshi white paper uh, is an explanation, uh, you know, for the mechanism and network of Bitcoin. That is the invention. That's the, you know, that's the holy grail of everything, right? Yep. He solved the Byzantine general's problem of distributed trust and boom, this whole world developed. So I don't see any world in the future where Bitcoin is not essential to it. So if you're really like a new person to the space, I, you know, you really don't need much more than Bitcoin and you don't need to get too greedy either. I mean, I really it's early enough, you know, if making four five, six times your money is not enough, then I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, you know, if you want to make a as you said, if you want to make 10,000 X, yeah, I'm sure you can do your homework. And if you do your homework. You know, as you mentioned before, Solana from two to 180. I know a whole bunch of guys who have been long through the whole way. Most of them are now billionaires. Um, that's wonderful. Okay. But that's what they do, 
right? They have teams out there that, you know, analyze the code, analyze which protocols are special, why, you know, and that's, you know, that, that's wonderful. Um, but for just, you know, the average guy uh, listening to this podcast, this interview, I just think unless you're going to dedicate your life to this and be part of a group or a team that is focused on this 24-7, 365, it's just not a good idea. And I think, you know, even Ethereum, if it's really Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, you know, the initial, the initial allocation that I made for this institution I'm involved with is, was uh, roughly 80-20. And I think that that 80 Bitcoin, 20 Ethereum, you know, that's changed now because the percentage, you know, Ethereum has rallied more. But um, it's like, okay, Ethereum's up, uh, you know, 20, over 20 times from that period. And Bitcoin is up 10 times. I mean, in 18 months. Now, come on. Like, if, if, if you're upset about 10 times in 18 months, you know, I just, you're, I don't know what, I don't to, know tell what to tell you about your your way your 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 level of general happiness yeah. right so i'm with you. you you follow what i'm saying i follow right? what you're saying because yeah. it's it's a dangerous it is dangerous out there in the sense that there's huge volatility there are a lot of projects i would call early stage protocols that don't make sense that you know and i i think you you've never had to do your homework more than in this space yeah so and here's what I would say as well. These assets all are reflexive assets, but they operate on a spectrum of reflexivity. And I, look, I just watched this all happen in 2017, 2018 too. Uh, back then it was like the ICOs, right? And it's almost like the ones that have the least well understood valuation methodology, like the, the most risky, those do the best when you know animal spirits are pumping and uh, you know speculative money's flowing in, but you know they'll crash the hardest on the other side. And unless you're a genius and you know exactly when to pull out, yeah, you're you're being extremely risky. W one thing though that I did want to to ask, and I know we're running a little low on time here, is um, you know your bet about uh, just kind of reducing the volatility, de-risking a certain bit with 10T as a fund. I love that idea because I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but when we started Blockworks, that was a big part of our strategy as well. I don't want to take a bet on any one direction or protocol or anything like that. Uh, so we like just kind of the broad exposure, honestly, that Blockworks gave us to the space in general too. My, my question to you would be, do you think about, um, it's impossible to call the timing on this kind of stuff, right? But we do operate in an industry with extreme volatility, right? Do, does that factor into your investing at all? Do you kind of think, hey, uh, like I know there's going to be a bunch of kind of capital starved companies that might need some operating capital at the bottom of one of these things. Does, do, does the cycle, uh, the, the, the market cycles well, kind of play into your investing Well, a little bit, strategy? but a little bit. I mean, you know, we, we I, I, I like buying low and selling high. I know that sounds stupid, but, um, you know, in 19... Uh, when I started to have the idea for this type of business. And again, the, the idea really kind of grew out of, you know, this Agcoa business that I started with Druckenmiller in 06. Uh, it was sold in 13, sort of an aggregating business. We aggregated lots of farms and sort of became the largest private farmland REIT in the U.S. By That was by 13. I sort of had the same idea. You know, I wanted to um, aggregate, you know, the top, sort of businesses in the space um, to give to give us exposure. And so and and so I'd experienced that before um, because that portfolio of farms uh, in 2008 didn't even mark down. Mm. So every asset in the entire world except for bonds was down a lot. And so I, I you know, I, I lived through that and was blown away by that fact. And I thought, well, you know, because the farms are still producing, people still are eating, there's, you know, the prices were high enough, um, you know, of the underlying. And it's sort of the same thing here. Um, you know, I, and, and we tested it a little bit because in 18, as you know, Bitcoin went down 80% and Ethereum 90 plus percent. But a basket of these companies that I looked at at the time kind of held their value broadly. So that was like a real light bulb moment for me. And I thought, wow, I can get access to the most, the greatest returning asset of all time 
with the highest volatility profile probably of all time, okay? And I can get access to it with a fraction of the volatility. Now, I'm not saying we're going to outperform Bitcoin or not. I don't even care. Uh, I just want this sort of macro wind at my back. And as I said to you before, you know, making a 5 to 10x in five, six, seven, eight years is, you know, I don't think is out of the question here. Um, you know, and I think we can put real money to work in the space. So I, you know, I don't try to, I think that your initial question was, I don't try to front run the cycle, but in 1819, things were soft. It was clear to me. Um, and I was very aggressive buying in January, February, and March because I did have a view that sort of within the next 12 to 18 months, Bitcoin would hit 100,000. Mm -hmm. And I thought that last year too. So we're sort of in a perpetual rush because as Bitcoin and the space appreciates, you know, in, in many cases, the space also and the value of the equity does appreciate. Where we have a little bit of an edge now is that there just aren't enough players out there to fund all the growth. Yep. So uh, we have a pipeline that is tremendous. And, you know, the fund that the, the, the two funds that we closed, I mean, we're already 80% allocated. Right. Okay. That's incredible. And that's in six months. And I've got a pipeline, probably of another 20 companies that we could invest in. So, you know, we'll see lots of opportunity out there. Let me ask you just a closing question, just hypothetically. One thing that I've noticed a little bit, uh, when you look at like the 1819 period, that bear gave birth to a lot of really great companies, right? So we're talking about Kraken's been around forever, but like in 1819, you kind of had uh, like the block fives of the world, uh, you had the fire blocks of the world. And to me, like the, the bucket of companies that got uh, minted during that generation were great uh, you call them CFI infrastructure type companies, right? Uh, companies that provided capital markets infrastructure in general, or like lending products or, or banking services or whatever it was. Um, it, one trend that I'm am starting to see, and maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't, um, but the, the new pro, uh, companies or projects that seem to be very exciting are more kind of in like the DeFi realm, like the Aves and the compounds of the world. That's probably maybe a little bit more outside of your bucket, but if you saw that trend continue, um, would you try to move more heavily into that space? Um, or would you kind well, of... So this is, again, the point that, um, you know, you, you can't buy equity in many of those, um, you know, in, in many of those um, areas, uh, especially in DeFi. Um, however, many of the businesses we own are leveraged to growth in the DeFi space. Got it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, almost I'm looking at them, you know, many of them uh, uh, and leveraged, you know, I think to, yeah, much more than just DeFi. I mean, stable coins, that was zero, basically X tether last year, it's exploded the whole, as I mentioned before, the, the staking business um, has really taken off. Um, you know, all sorts of new guys starting to offer derivatives. Uh, so I, 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 look, there are a lot of different ways to play this space. Again, I've thought a lot about this. Yeah. And as I said, it, it, it may not be optimal. We're not going to make that two to 180. But, um, you know, as the space grows, as I said, we're 10T. I, we were at 300 billion when this was conceived. My thought was if we go to 10T, we may not make 30X, but maybe we make 15X, maybe we make 10X, right? And so just as a long-term investor and having been 30 years in the traditional world, you know, I know a lot of people who would be just happy, fine with that kind of return. So Sounds like a pretty uh, good we'll return leave to this super cutting edge innovation to the VCs to Andreessen and Polychain and all of those guys, uh, you know, we're never going to be able to compete with them. So anyway, you guys are doing great work. Uh, Dan, Thanks. if folks do want to find out more about uh, 10T, get in touch with you, folks from your team, what's the best way to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, we have a website, and you can contact us there. It's, you know, 10tfund.com, pretty straightforward. I'm on Twitter, and, you know, we have a LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well, and, um, you know, those are good places. We're just updating our website now, so go take a look. Excellent. <laughs> uh, hey, it looks, it looks really good. Uh, I don't know who you, your design Thanks. person is, but it's looking great. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward. We're recording this on Friday the 10th, but I'll see you in person at uh, Digital Assets Summit. Um, it'll be you, me, uh, Dan Moorhead, and Mark Yusko uh, talking about the future of the dollar and Bitcoin. So I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, that's great. Cool. All right. Great, guys. Dan, uh, as always, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation, and I'm sure we'll chat soon. Look forward to it. Take care.